welcome to Sunday Sermons with Resurrection Church. This is the weekly preaching and teaching ministry of Resurrection Church in Gig Harbor, Washington. We just want to invite you to join us as we study God's story revealed through the Bible and seek to apply His truth to our modern life. Our hope is that through these teachings, you would experience life with Jesus as you experience life with us. Uh, that's okay. Let me give you the quick refresher. Uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Jesus kind of painted this verbal picture of his people as a beautiful vineyard, at the center of which is him, the vine. And we are his branches. And as his branches, we are created and intended to bear fruit. You might say, like, what does that mean to bear fruit? People, people use that word, that phrase in all kinds of different ways. In John 15, when Jesus says that we are to bear fruit, what he means is that we are to grow in Christ likeness as we submit to the gardener's hand and as we abide in the vine. We saw that, that fruitfulness in life is only possible if we are abiding in the vine. Today, I just want to focus in on that word, abide. That word abide is so important to what Jesus wants to tell us here in John chapter 15. He uses it 11 times just in this one chapter, which is, I think, in some ways unfortunate because we don't really know what the word means. It's not really a word that we tend to use on a regular basis. Like, I I guarantee even y'all church people, y'all haven't used this word in the last year. Like, most likely. Unless you've spoken about being a law-abiding citizen, maybe. Or if someone did something you really didn't like and you're like, ah, I can't abide by that. Those are like the only two ways we use this word. If you were to ask most people what the word means, like, hey, define the word abide. It'd probably give you a definition, something like, ah, to remain, which is what the NET translation says. Or maybe they would say just to to stay wherever you're at, to, to dwell in one place. Those definitions are all adequate on some level, but they miss the point. They don't quite capture what Jesus is really getting at here. See, rather than simply a static stillness, staying in one place, what Jesus really is inviting us to is to actively maintain an intimate, life-giving connection. That's what Jesus means when he uses the word abide. Last week, I gave an illustration to try to explain and expound on this idea a little bit more in depth. I said that abiding was like trying to stay in one place in a wave pool. Do you you remember this? That the waves are coming against you, and to abide, you need to stay in the same place, so you've actually got to exert some kind of energy. You've got to be intentional in your effort to stay in one place amidst the waves. And I stand by that illustration, but just like any illustration, it, it breaks down at some point. And I realized as I was thinking about it this week that that illustration captures the intentionality and the effort that is required for abiding, but it misses out on the relational aspect. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. There's an interconnectedness. There's a, a, 
a mutual intentionality going on with abiding that, that I think my illustration didn't quite hit. So I'm going to give it another shot. Can I give it another shot? Will y'all, will y'all allow me to? When I was about five, my family went to Disneyland. All of my family, except my dad and my little sister. She wasn't old enough to go, and so dad had to stay home. But mom took my brother and I with a whole bunch of aunts, uncles, and cousins. Like the whole crew, except my dad and sister, got to go uh, down to Disneyland. And it was like the best thing my little five-year-old brain could have ever comprehended. But at the start, not only of every day, but whenever we were going to move from one part of the park to another part of the park, my mom or one of the responsible adults who were there would, would get the, all the kids' attention, and what would they say? Stay together. We're going to be moving through the park. There's going to be a lot of people jostling around. There's going to be lots of opportunities to get disconnected, but I want you to stay together. If I would have stayed still, I would not have been abiding with my family. See, Abiding in that sense meant moving together as a unit. Where, where, where the vine, where the family, where the center of life was going, so also I ought to go. That's what they were saying when they were telling us to stay together. Now, perhaps you can guess which kid got lost on this trip to Disneyland. It was the youngest. It was me. You see... My, this time, my family gave kind of dual instructions. They said, stay together. We're going to stay on the red path. I said, great. We can stay together. We can stay on the red path. We can do this. So we start moving. We're moving through the park all as one unit. I'm out in front leading the way like, I don't know where we're going, but I'm going to get us there. And there was a fork in the red path. And I took the right fork. And the rest of my family took the left fork. I had gotten disconnected. I was no longer uh, abiding with my family. I was lost. Fun fact, I'm still lost. I never found my family. I just found the <laughs> nicest people who would take me home wherever they were going. Just, just kidding. I thought that I had stayed where I was supposed to be. Because when I looked down, it looked like where I was supposed to be, but I wasn't connected to who I was supposed to be with. That, that captures something of the essence of abiding. And in our verses today, we see Jesus set aside the vineyard metaphor for a moment and just zoom in on this idea of abiding. This lifelong, active, dynamic connection that we are to have with him. And so I want us to walk with Jesus. He and his disciples have just gotten up from their post-dinner conversation. They've, they've gotten up from the upper room and are walking now through the town on their way to the garden. I want us to walk with Jesus and listen for the motivation that he gives us for abiding, the method that he offers us for abiding, and the results that he promises us for abiding. Okay, we'll go motivation, method, results. I couldn't find an M word for results, so that, that's what we've got. Let's start with the motivation for abiding. Said another way, why should we abide in Jesus? Look with me at verse 9. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my, what does he say? 
Abide in my love. See, based on everything that we looked at last week, if you were just to go back to verses 1 through 8, with all the talk of bearing fruit and being fruitful, you might think that the motivation for abiding in Jesus is the opportunity to bear fruit. But that's actually not what Jesus says if we keep listening. Being fruitful and growing in Christ's likeness is an amazing gift from God that happens when we abide, but it's not actually what Jesus says ought to be our motivation for staying connected to him. Jesus knows that, that we need a, a deeper motivation, a, a, a truer motivation, an unchanging motivation. So rather than letting us focus on ourselves and our own fruitfulness, Jesus invites us to focus on him and his unchanging love for us. That ought to be our motivation for actively cultivating this connection with him. He says, abide in my love. What does it mean for us to abide in the love of Jesus? Well, notice what he says about his love. In the first part of the verse, he says that just as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. His love for you, Christian, is just identical to the Father's love for Jesus. Now, I hear you asking in your head and in your heart, well, how does the Father love Jesus? I'm so glad you asked. That's a very good question to ask. How does the Father love the Son? Well, perfectly, for one, you could say. There is no way in which the Father's love for the Son ever falters or falls short. He also loves the Son eternally. There is never a moment in which the Father is not actively loving the Son. Someone else might say that he loves the Son unconditionally. That there is nothing that the Son must do in order to earn the Father's love. No, he is loved by the Father based purely on who he is and the relationship that they have with one another. This ought to make us pause. Jesus says that as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, perfectly loved you, eternally loved you, unconditionally loved you. Jesus loves you not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of who he is and what he has done. And that ought to get us happy. That, that ought to relieve us of some of the, the pressure that the world would seek to pile on us. Aren't you glad, church, that Jesus gives us his love as our motivation for abiding rather than anything else? Just think about it. There, there is no other motivation that could possibly keep us connected to the life that Jesus gives us in the same way. Someone, someone might object and say, well, well, what about fruitfulness? Jesus had just been talking a lot about fruitfulness. It seems like, really, that could be a good motivation. I want to be fruitful, so that should drive me to stay connected to Jesus, right? I would tell you that our fruitfulness is, is good and it's a blessing, but it's a terrible motivation to abide in Christ. Why? What, what happens when you're in a relationship with someone? That's all focused on results. How quickly does that deteriorate from a genuine friendship into something merely transactional? If the thing you're interested 
in having a relationship with a person is not the person, but what the result is of you being in relationship with the person. As soon as that person doesn't give you what you want, when you want it, or as soon as it costs too much, that abiding is going to go away. Well, what about willpower, somebody might say? Like, like can't we just buckle down, grin and, and bear it? Can't, can't, can't we just will our way to abiding in Jesus? I heard one pastor or theologian one time call this sola bootstrapsa. Just pick yourselves up by the boot, by bootstraps alone, we can make it. That's what that means. No, because if we're relying on our own willpower as our motivation for abiding, then as soon as you become tired or weary or find something else that's more alluring to you, you will stop cultivating connection with Jesus. You will choose the, the shinier thing, the easier thing, the tastier thing. Some people, I think, get fooled. They, they think, we think sometimes, that we are abiding because of Jesus' love. But sometimes some of us seek to abide in Jesus, not because of his love as it is, but because of our desire to be loved. The, the, the hole that has been left unfilled in our lives, and we are seeking to feel some kind of different Way. People will do all kinds of things to be loved. That's true. But not even this most basic desire for acceptance or affection can truly motivate us into a whole life of abiding with Jesus. Because even though Jesus is perfect, even though his love is unconditional, eternal, and perfect, and unchanging for us, sometimes our experience of his love feels as though it leaves something to be desired. We don't always feel Jesus' love like we should, either, either because of the brokenness of the world around us or the brokenness of our own hearts within us, or maybe just the fact that sometimes Jesus' love for you looks different than you want it to. It feels different than you want it to. Jesus, if you really loved me, then you would be doing this. And Jesus says, no, 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 I really love you, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. The only motivation that can keep us abiding in Jesus is to clearly see his perfect, eternal, unconditional love for us. The same kind of love that the Father has for Jesus. That is our motivation for abiding. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He also gives us a method for abiding. So, so let's ask, what's the method? How do we practically abide in Jesus? We see this actually kind of scattered throughout. We'll start in verse 10. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and I abide in his love. Show of hands. Let's do a quick, a quick word association game. Uh, if I say the word love... Who has the first word come to mind be commandments? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, no? No? Okay. This is not something that we associate together. We, we don't often think about commandments as having anything to do with love. Obligation, sure. Responsibility, yeah, maybe. But commandments and love, those are kind of 
almost mutually exclusive categories in our postmodern Western framework. Probably because we rarely see commandments as a positive thing. But Jesus says that his commandments are directly connected to his love. In fact, he says that they are the the method, the, the means for abiding in his love. His commandments. How are they connected? This is really important that we get this straight in our minds. Jesus' commandments are the context in which we experience his love most fully. Okay, there, there are people who are not walking in Jesus' commandments and the sun still comes up on them just the same as everybody else. That's an experience of Jesus' love. But the commandments of God are the context in which we experience the fullness of the love of God. See, many people don't, don't understand this. We miss this because of that little word at the beginning of the verse. Y'all see that first word right there? What word is that? That's a tricky word. Don't let it trip you up. We see that word if, and we think that Jesus is presenting us a hurdle that we must clear before we can abide. As if Jesus is saying, if you can just jump this high, then you can get in. Then you can, over here is the abiding place, and if you can just get over this, then you'll be good. If you keep my commandments. But that's actually not what Jesus is doing here. Forgive me if I'm belaboring this point a little bit too much, but I think that this is maybe one of the biggest misconceptions that people have about the commandments of God and how it relates to his love. This is so important that we see this because if we think that Jesus is asking us to earn his love with our obedience, we are missing the whole gospel. We're missing the whole thing. Jesus is not saying here that obedience somehow earns us God's love or qualifies us for God's love. Jesus is not saying that that obedience is the price of admission for abiding in Christ. That's not the point that he's getting at. You don't have to pay to get in. In fact, if you read the Bible, if you if you understand the gospel story, you would know that the price to get in is too high. Nobody can afford the price of admission if we were to have to pay it on our own. So that can't be what Jesus is telling us here. Rather, Jesus is telling us the way in which we can participate in his life. He says, in order to abide, you ought to keep my commandments. In order to stay intimately connected to my love, which gives you life, keep my commandments. Jesus is giving us the setting, not a setup. Jesus is saying, when he, when he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, it's kind of like giving directions to someone on the freeway, if I can use maybe a crude or imperfect analogy. Like, if you're on 16 going east, if you stay in the left lane, you'll get onto I-5 north. I think that's more similar to what Jesus is doing here. He's giving us the context in which we can get to where we want to go. It's almost as, as if he's inviting us over for dinner and he's saying, hey, if you get here at 5, there will be plenty to eat. Okay, getting there at 5, if you show up at 5.05, there's still going to be plenty to eat. But he, he is telling us the context in which we can experience his love and his life. 
He is not at a ticket booth saying, here's how much you need to get into the theater. He's saying, no, if you want to see the show, you should probably go to the theater. He's giving us the context, not the price of admission. The context in which we can abide in the love of Jesus is in the keeping of his commandments. Now, we've already established that y'all ask very good questions, so I know that at this point you're all asking in your minds, well, what commandments precisely is he talking about? Because there's a lot in this thing. So let, let's like narrow it down and so we can know which commandments are we supposed to keep in order to abide in his love. Well, thankfully, Jesus tells us. Skipping down to verse 12 and 13, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So not only does Jesus say, obey my commandments, he says, okay, here's the commandment. Here's how to abide in my love. Love one another. He says to abide in his love, Jesus is inviting us to keep his commandments. And in order to keep his commandments, he's saying that we ought to love one another. Not only are we to love one another, though, he says, love one another as I have loved you. Well, how has Jesus loved us? Just as the Father loved him. Perfectly, eternally, unconditionally. Jesus is calling, in, calling us into a godlike love for one another. A self-sacrificial love for one another. The kind of love that is most supremely expressed in the giving up of oneself. Jesus loves you so perfectly, so eternally, so unconditionally that he left heaven and came to earth. He lived a life like you, encountering all the suffering, all the temptation, all the sorrow, all the challenges you do, except he did it perfectly. He, he loved you so perfectly that he went to the cross and died in your place for your sins so that there would be nothing separating you from abiding in him anymore. And he was raised from the dead in order to give you new life. See, Jesus loves you by laying down his life for you, which is why he tells us greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for a friend. We are to love one another by laying down our lives, just as Jesus has loved us. In verse 17, Jesus reiterates this once again. He says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. It's almost as if Jesus is telling us that the way to abide is to love one another. The way to abide in Jesus is to love the people that he has put around you. Now, I don't know about you, but this is not what I was taught about abiding growing up in the church. Y'all know I'm a pastor's kid. I, I was like swimming in these kinds of passages, this kind of language a lot. I, I used to be on staff at a vineyard church. You can imagine how popular this passage was. I am the vine. You are the bread. This was like what we just ate and breathed. But no one ever taught me that the way to abide in Jesus is to love his people. 
It's exactly what Jesus is saying. It's staring us in the face, and yet we make up other things to tell people how to abide in Jesus. In my mind, abiding has always and only meant, maybe not only, but I think only, praying and reading scripture. This is every time I've ever heard this passage, shoot, every time I've taught on this passage prior to today, this is what abiding has meant. Pray and read scripture. Talk to Jesus, hear from Jesus. Spend time with Jesus, read his word. Okay, now don't. Someone's going to be like, Pastor told me I don't have to pray and read scripture. You, you Pray and read scripture, okay? Those are good things. Those are necessary for the Christian walk. Those things are commanded of us elsewhere in the Gospels and in the New Testament. You will have a poorer life if you are not constantly praying and seeking the Lord in his word. Okay, so I'm not telling you not to do those things. I am telling you that that doesn't seem to be what Jesus is talking about right here. Jesus is is not telling us to go away on our own to abide in him. He is planting us firmly in the context of community and saying, y'all abide in me. I, I wish that our... English translations did a little bit better job with the second person plural pronoun. Y'all, any, any grammar freaks? I know we've got one English teacher. Okay, The second person plural pronoun. Here in Washington, we say you. In the southern part of the country, they say y'all. Okay, it's useful, and I would say biblical. Every single one of these statements in verses 10, verses 12 and 13, and verse 17 that I just read, Jesus is not saying you individually. He is saying y'all. Verse 10, he says, if y'all keep my commandments, y'all will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments. Verse 12, he says, this is my commandment, that y'all love one another, just as I have loved y'all. Verse 17, he says, these things I command y'all, that y'all love one another. Jesus was a good southern preacher. That's what I'm trying to tell you right now. This is an invitation to community. As modern Christians, we, we tend to read the Bible through an individual lens. Because we live in a highly individualistic society. I would say the most individualistic society the world has ever seen. It comes naturally to us to read the Bible this way. The only problem is that ancient societies, or even non-Western societies today, like societies like the one Jesus lived in, were very different. They were communal by nature. The biblical idea of life of the the good life is one lived in community with God and with his people this is can present a problem for us though not not that the scripture presents a problem for us but that our our cultural context presents a problem and the problem is called individualism as americans we have this idea of rugged individualism embedded so deeply in our DNA that we don't even recognize it. Most people in our culture and our society believe that they can succeed on their own. In fact, some people probably believe that they can only succeed on their own. 
Indeed, uh, our country was founded with individualism as a core value. Both of our major political parties base many of their ideas in this idea of rugged individualism. It's like one has gone so far right and one has gone so far left that they've just come back and met at just like, let's be the most individualistic that we can. And for some, it looks this way, and for some, it looks this way. But really, they're, they're both just different expressions of rugged individualism. That's a, a, a term that was coined, I think, by Herbert Hoover. And it, he wasn't labeling a, a concern for the country coming out of World War I. He was actually harnessing an identity, trying to galvanize people together by making them all individuals. Doesn't make any sense, but it's become deeply embedded in who we are. This is why most Americans are, are very self-reliant. But sadly, this rugged individualist mentality only leads us to isolation, loneliness, and despair. But rugged individualism has, has not been the norm throughout history. In ancient times, there was no concept of a private life like we have today. It just didn't exist. People lived communal lives. We read like about things going on in somebody's household, and we're like, oh, their household must have looked like my household. No, it didn't. Households in, in ancient cities, in ancient communities, probably don't think like single-family home. Think of an apartment complex. And there would be one kind of anchor family, probably the wealthiest, on the bottom floor. These would be intergenerational families living. And the higher up in the apartment complex you went, the poorer the people got and the worse the conditions got. So the, the, the people up at the top who didn't like their homes, what would they do? They wouldn't stay home. They would come down, they would come out, and they would live their life in the midst of community. Households were not a place of refuge. They were like a place of necessity. People left their households and lived in the context of community. When we think of a household, we, we think of like a, a single family home. Typically, just one generation, maybe two generations, either just a couple or just like parents and kids. Anything else seems out of the norm for us. When, when Sarah and I tell people that we just bought a house and her parents moved in, they're like, oh, is everything okay? Like, how is that? Like, this is normal for all the rest of human history, and we think it's crazy. It's a product of our rugged individualism. Homes were multi-generational, but that, that's... Just one element of the, of the communal life. I bring up homes because it's important to see how, how our understanding of, of home and of community actually shapes us. It wasn't until the 1800s that people began drawing a real sharp distinction between family and friends when it came to who they were going to live with. Anytime they, they read the Bible and said that, Y'all ought to be doing things. They're like, oh, cool. I know who y'all is. This is great. I, I'm around y'all all the time. But in the 1800s, that started to change. By the latter half of the 19th century, one family household started to take shape. The Industrial Revolution is happening. People are becoming more separated in their lives. 
And then by the 20th century, industrial efficiency and economic prosperity have, have grown to a place to make it possible for Americans to live basically as we do today. One nuclear family, pretty much closed off from relatives or friends. And in fact, the, the more money you have, the farther away you can be from people. Almost every technological development of the last 200 years has disintegrated us as a community and allowed for more rugged individualism. Even, even the technology of printed books has, has served to, to help that along. In Jesus' day, not everybody had their own Bible for, for private Bible time. It's just one of the ironies. When we say abiding in Jesus means private Bible time, it literally can't have meant that for Jesus because that didn't exist. In any given town, there was probably one set of scriptures and it lived in the synagogue and people had to go with their family or friends to the synagogue and hear whatever was going to be read that day, read out loud together as a community. Even the reading of scripture was a communal activity, not an individual one. And I say all of this to say that abiding is not individual. I cannot tell you the number of times that I have heard or even said that if you want to abide in Jesus, strap up those boots. And here's your things. Make sure you're doing it on your own. Somehow it doesn't count if you're with other people. If someone else has to help you, it's no good. You've got you've to read your Bible on your own. and It's got to be good every time. You've got you to pray on your own. It's got to be fulfilling every time. That is not what Jesus is saying to us here. Jesus is inviting us out of our rugged individualism and into a community which abides in him as we abide together. This, for Jesus, is what it means to abide in his love and keep his commandments. The Christian faith is not individualistic. It can't be. Sometimes when we're tempted toward this, toward this kind of sola bootstraps, this, this doing it on our own, picking ourselves up and, and just willing ourselves to abide in Jesus or to, to find life in some kind of way, there, there tends to be a couple different ways this can go wrong. For, for some people, they like this idea of abiding in God because we think that it means we don't have to abide with others. For some people, this is very attractive. Oh, I'm supposed to abide in Jesus? Great, see y'all later. I'm, I'm going this way. What happens to those people? They get into an echo chamber of doing spirituality by themselves that probably already aligns with how they are, how they want themselves to be. Right? They, they find a, a podcast pastor they like. They, they find the worship music they like on Spotify, and it's always in tune, and the drummer never misses a beat. Right? They, they find the Instagram influencer that, that feels like motivating to them and makes them feel good, and like things are good. They're all set. They don't have to mess with all these other annoying Christians. Like, they can just abide in Jesus. Praise God. They individually do all these things in an effort to abide. 
but they don't know what it means to be part of a local church. They, they don't know what it means to be in community with others. They, they don't know what it means to practice loving hospitality. They don't know what it means to confess and to seek forgiveness from the people that they have wronged or to forgive those who have wronged them. They, they're reading the Bible, but they're not discussing it with anybody else and, and learning from the people that God has put around them. They're not actually abiding. In fact... Most likely what's happening is they're in the wave pool being pushed by the waves. They're in Disneyland on the red path, and it looks like they're in the right place, but they're not with the right people. On the other hand, there are some people that really like the idea of abiding with others without abiding in God. These people will have, have great in-depth psychological conversations, will care for each other, they'll have community, but, but they don't seek God through Jesus. They're trying to abide, they're, they're trying to fill that void in their lives, but instead of connecting to the vine, they're trying to graft into other branches. These are sort of two ditches on either side of the road that we have to avoid as we seek to abide in Jesus. So on the one hand, we try to abide with God and we avoid others, or we try to abide with others and we avoid God. But I want us to see that we must have both. If we're going to truly abide in God, we must abide with one another. It's, it's built into the language that Jesus uses. Y'all abide in my love. This is the heart of the matter, church. Abide in Jesus together. Abide in Jesus together. Whenever, I, whenever you hear this verse or this picture of a vineyard and you hear that word abide, I want your first thought to be together. No good vine grows only one branch. If you were to, to look at a grapevine, sometimes it might even be hard to distinguish which branch is which, what fruit is coming from which branch, because they are so intermingled, so communally bound together because they are connected to the same vine. Abide in Jesus together. I told you that I would tell you the results that happen when we abide, so, so I'll, I'll do that quickly. What happens when we abide together? What happens when we abide in Jesus together? We see a few things. One, we see in verse 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my what? Oh, I lost some of you. That my what? Joy may be in you, and so that your joy may be full. Sometimes talking about obedience and commandments and all these things feels joyless, does it not? You might be imagining a world, if, you're, if you were going through this, these verses on your own and reading about commandments and obedience and keeping commands and just imagining like everyone wearing gray, nobody is smiling, everyone's merely complying with some demand, some obligation from on high. That's not the vision of abiding that Jesus has in mind. 
He, he says that he tells us all these things, not so that we can begrudgingly comply, but so that his joy can be in us and so that our joy may be full. Some other translations say so that our joy may be complete. When we abide in Jesus together, we experience joy. Verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Abiding in Jesus together means that we have friendship with God. This, this should not be glossed over too quickly as kind of a pleasant platitude without realizing what it's actually saying. Jesus is telling us that the God of the universe, the, the completely holy, totally other, entirely unique creator God who is above all and over all, calls those who abide in him friends. You realize this is entirely unique to the biblical story. That there is, there is no other story of reality, no other worldview in which we are invited to be called friends of God. Every other ancient creation myth basically went like this. The gods were hanging out. They got in a fight. They got angry at each other. They needed some warriors. So they made humans to go do their bidding. Or for some, the gods got in a fight and one god totally destroyed the other and out of the remains of that god, this other god created some people. So some people are in the image of a god, but it's like the loser god. You know what I mean? And everybody else, they're just kind of like, they're not made in the image of God. The biblical story says from the very beginning that all people are made in the image and likeness of the one true God, the Most High. That we are created for intimate connection, relationship, and friendship with God. And we broke that, but Jesus put it back together on the cross. And he is inviting us to be called friends. Now, as we abide in him together. That there's a lot of words that I can think of that ought to describe a fallen creation's natural relationship to a perfect creator, but friend is not among them. That word can only be applied to us because of something Jesus has done for us. At best, we ought to be called servants, but Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because I'm revealing everything to you. So I better call you my friends. Verse 16, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Check this out. So so when we abide in Jesus and his word abides in us, when we abide in Jesus and he abides in us, when we abide in his love, we bear fruit and our fruit does what? It abides. It endures so that whatever you ask in the, the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus says that he chose and appointed us so that we should go. That's a call to mission. And that our fruit should abide. He's talking about a kingdom legacy. Jesus says, when you abide in me together, you have legacy. 
legacy that abides. Not because of us, but because of the vine, the one who gives the life, the one who gives the fruit. Ultimately, we see the perfect model of abiding in Jesus. Throughout his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus shows us what it means to abide. In his ministry, Jesus was always abiding in the Father. Jesus, yeah, he would go away and he would pray in solitude, but he would also teach in public, pray in public, have conversations in community with his disciples, share meals together with people who were seeking after him. He was abiding. When Jesus taught crowds, he taught the words of the Father. He was abiding. When he did miracles, he says he only did what the Father had given him to do. He was abiding. And as he's hanging on the cross, Jesus cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He is still abiding, even to death. And as Jesus is raised from the grave and ascends into heaven, now he is abiding seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus always has been and always is abiding in private, in public, in praying, in performing miracles, in life, and in death. Jesus is abiding. And what he chooses to do with that abiding is to offer it to us and invite us in. He says, just as I have abided in the Father, so you ought to abide in me, in my love. Jesus wants us to abide in him together, church. In closing, I'll just say, do not give in to the temptation to go through the Christian life on your own. Some of us are, are in seasons where it would be easier to get rid of all these people around us and just power through on my own. There is no life in that. There is no fruit in that Jesus has given a community, a church, so that you can abide in him together. That is what we are created for. I didn't actually go home with a stranger's family from Disneyland, in case anyone was still wondering, because the adults in our group had taught us what to do if we got lost. They didn't say... If you get lost, you better start looking for us real hard on your own. If you have to ask for help, it doesn't count. No, no, no. They said, look, anybody in the park who's dressed up in like the full get up as a Disney character or anybody that's got a name tag on, you can go ask them and they'll help you reconnect to us. Church, when when we get separated or when we feel separated from God, he does not say you better get to work looking for me on your own. He says, I've given you people. I've placed them all around. Go to them and let them help you find your way back to me. congrats, you made it through the whole sermon. We just want to say thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons with Resurrection Church. Again, this is the weekly preaching and teaching ministry of Resurrection Church in Gig Harbor, Washington. If you want to connect with us, you can do that by going to our website at resurrectionchurch.com. 
There you will find all the ways to worship with us, and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, connect with us through a group or event, find a place to serve, and give financially. We're so thankful for each and every one of you, and our hope is that you will continue to live life with Jesus this week.